History matters. And obviously I'm a historian, so you don't expect me to say that sort of thing, but I think we can learn a lot from history. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss, and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up after I have been away for a little while. And then later on the pod, we sat down with one of our favorite professors all the way from Hanover, New Hampshire, Dr. Randall Balmer. Dr. Balmer's got a brand new book out entitled Saving Faith. It's a good pod. You're not going to miss it. Hey there, Missy. Hey, well, it's nice of you to finally show up. <laughs> no, why would you say something like that? I'm here. I don't know. You're coming in on two I mean, wheels. it's like you're telling on me. <laughs> For a moment, it was going to be me by myself, and you know that was not going to be a good Oh, that situation. would have been podcast gold. <laughs> yes, and both of us would have lost our jobs. <laughs> so anyways, you have been... Um, Traveling and yes. had delays, canceled flights, an extra night in hotel, all mm-hmm. the you know all the typical things that that seem to happen these days. So we haven't even like said hello. You dropped your bags and ran <laughs> ran to the studio to record. So hello, right. welcome hello. home. Oh, it's good to be home. Also, the trash needs to be taken out. <laughs> the garage door is broken. I thought I smelled something when I walked through the you door. You did. <laughs> you were like, you literally did. You said, um, "Have y'all not left the fan on? It's musty in here." And I said, "Well, it could be the trash can that's overflowing because." <laughs> You haven't been home. So, not only the trash can, ladies and gentlemen, but also there was like, I think a case full of Diet Coke cans laying in the not. floor that I had to go pick up. Don't lie. That's not true. But, but truly, the, whatever. The trash needs to be taken out and the garage door is broken. So, Wonderful. Um, anyway, so welcome home. Oh, it's so great to be home. Yeah, I haven't even, like, how was your trip? How was your flight? I don't know any of this. The trip was good. I'll talk about that here in a little bit. But I've got a little bit of a pet peeve that happened oh, to me. Oh, you have one? <laughs> yes. Excellent. Absolutely. There's two things, really, I want to talk about. One is I love parents dearly. I sympathize, empathize with every parent who has kids. If there's a butt coming, then you've just negated everything you said. However, that qualifies. I have a little note to give you uh, on your travel experiences. I appreciate the big headphones, noise canceling headphones that all these parents are putting on their heads as soon as they sit down in their seats. I don't understand why they don't give their children the same headphone as they play their video game on their iPad at top levels right next to me. So that was my pet peeve a couple of weeks ago, I think I told you. that yes. The parents, like when you're blocking out your own child's noise, that doesn't block it out for everyone Everybody. else. <laughs> and I had my headphones on too. I had my uh, AirPods in. It was still so loud. That's crazy because the airline, like all of the recorded messages you get when you get on the airplane now says, if you're watching TV, use you know, yeah. headphones. Yeah. And they even hand them out sometimes uh, before the flight takes off. So That's crazy. Anyway, I'm sorry. Here's the second one. Okay. I am so tired of individuals, mainly white males, in an airport talking on their phones, either on their earbuds or on speakerphone, so loud 
then I know exactly what they are saying as well as the other person, the person on the other well, end. Well, Mitch, counterpoint, how else will you know how important they are? I mean, it's basically the airport version of how big are your truck tires, right? <laughs> that is so true. It's what it is. And, you know, I have complained to you about this yeah. several times. It's getting worse. It's getting so bad yeah. that you can't go anywhere without some guy having this important business call on speakerphone or, like you said, he's got his airport. And what's in. crazy about it, I mean, if you have to do that, okay, but go try to find some quiet place to go do that. There or, are areas I'll, in the airport where. But you I'm can talking do that. about in the line, trying to get on the airplane, having those conversations. It's like, dude, at shut least up. at least try to be quiet if it's something you have to do. Right. But I agree. Do you remember? I don't know if I've told this story or not, but. We were in the airport one time. This wasn't a man. Um, this was an older woman who was having a conversation on her iPhone, but she had it up to her ear like she's talking on the phone, but it was on speakerphone. Speaker. Do you remember this? Oh, yeah, I do. This is funny. Like, this was not at all what you're talking about. No. But she was telling this story of we went on this boat and this like touristy catamaran uh-huh. kind of thing, and it, it capsized. So yeah. it turned over. She's like, Yeah, and I lost my hearing aids. <laughs> And all of us, uh, everybody, everybody in the, in the restaurant was like, yep, you did. <laughs> you did. You did. <laughs> she had no idea she was on speakerphone. She had no idea. That was the funniest thing. So. Anyway, so tell me about the conference you went to. I'm super curious. Oh, well, I met Annie Zonnevald at the Parliament of the World Religions when we went to Chicago. And we had her on the show a couple of weeks ago. And Annie's just fantastic. Well, it was her group meeting at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. Uh, they had their 20. 23 conference, the Muslims for Progressive Values. And it was so interesting, Missy. So what did you find? What did you learn that you did not know before? A couple of things. Uh, First, I want to just kind of talk about how interesting it was for me to sit there and listen to individuals from another faith tradition gripe about people in their own faith. <laughs> because You think we're the only ones having problems in our house? <laughs> exactly. Because uh, I, mean, I was telling a few people on the way back, I said, you know, if I closed my eyes and didn't know I was at a Muslim conference, I would just assume I was at a, you know, a moderate to progressive Baptist. Did you smell conference? the fellowship hall smell? I did. Yeah. yeah. I did. So I had that kind of a musty smell to it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we tried to provide that for you when you came home today. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, so there was that. But then also... All the great things that this organization and uh, Muslims for Progressive Values are doing across the country, advocating for women's rights, reproductive rights, also advocating for the inclusion, equity, and affirmation of LGBTQ plus people uh, within their faith, Um, working to stamp out not necessarily Christian nationalism, I'm going to get into that here in a second, stamping out this nationalism that is infiltrating their faith at this time uh, here in the United States. And so uh, it is really interesting. Also, they had a conversation about reaching the next generation of Muslims and that the rigidness and the and using their words, some of the hate-filled mm-hmm. language within their faith towards women and LGBTQ people has driven a lot of the younger Muslims away from the faith. And so this need to do some outreach and to provide another way for people to be uh, Muslim and to stay true to their conscience. So it was just, it was very fascinating to me. But the one thing that I learned at the conference and also 
frightened me to death was the notion of this nationalistic uh, mantra working its way into uh, Islamic communities. And it's being spearheaded by Christian nationalists. Ani was telling the group in New York that Michael Flynn and people like Michael Flynn are Oh, you're looking at me. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at you wide-eyed. When you said that name, I'm like, wait, I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. where this is going. So, yeah, maybe I should have put the preface. Disgraced former general Michael Flynn. Uh, he is reaching out to uh, Islamic leaders here in the United States and these communities in an attempt to spread the values of Christian nationalism within these Islamic communities. And here's how they're doing it. They're no longer using the Islamic or the anti-Islam rhetoric that they use so prominent after 9/11 mm-hmm. and and in many other instances. Now, what they're telling these uh, these Muslim communities is that the liberal agenda is after their families. Wow! So they're taking the family value card and inserting it into. Islamic communities. And Ani and other speakers in New York were saying, unfortunately, it's working uh, because a lot of people have forgotten about the reaction by these Christian nationalists when it, uh, in the, the years after 9-11. Uh, also, you know, after the, during the Trump administration, the, the Muslim ban, all the rhetoric that went, uh, went into demeaning Muslims. And so now all of a sudden they see the Muslim communities as an opportunity to gain more votes and more influence. And so they're using uh, anti-LGBTQ rhetoric to insert their quote-unquote family values rhetoric. I'm trying to remember, isn't there some sort of saying about strange bedfellows? Yes. That kind of applies here. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was that was really enlightening, uh, but I'm so glad there are people like Ani and uh, Muslims for Progressive Values out there keeping a watch on it, uh, making certain offering a counter narrative to what the Christian right is attempting to do in these Islamic communities. So we're pretty much out of time. We haven't even talked about the biggest drama of the week. What's that? McCarthy got out. <laughs> is that drama or is it just like, Oh, speaking poor, of strange bedfellows. Poor Kevin. I mean, one of the best memes I saw on the internet after McCarthy was kicked out of the speakership was that, uh, a picture of Kevin McCarthy alongside a picture of Kevin McAllister and said, well, at least one of these Kevins defended their house. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, I've seen so many that I've loved and saved, none of which are appropriate well, for no. this podcast. That's why so. I rushed back home. <laughs> That's right. See, this is why you're here and I didn't go it alone. Otherwise, we'd have been exploring some of the fun, uh, funny stuff that's, that's right. been flying around. Yeah. But I mean, Kevin's got nobody to blame but himself. I mean, he put himself in this situation by agreeing to the rules, caving to uh, ultra conservative in his own party to get the speakership. And so when Gates makes this motion, um, you know, wasn't surprised, wasn't surprised to me. And then he's crying over the fact that Democrats won't help him after just not long ago, him agreeing to a deal with Democrats to get the budget passed or to avoid a shutdown, a government shutdown. And then he goes on television and just, just lambashes them. So it's like, why, why are they going to help him if that's all he's going to do? So I hate it for the country because it is in disarray right now, but they've got nobody to blame but themselves. Yeah. So I think 
there's nothing to do now but cut this conversation off because <laughs> we could right. go. Well, we get to set we sat down with one of our good friends of the pod this week. That's right, Dr. Randall Balmer, our, one of our, one of our favorite professors. <laughs> That's we have right. so many. Yeah, so he was great. We talked about his new book book called Saving Faith. So I hope you guys all enjoy the conversation, and we'll circle back at the end. Stay tuned. You know, Missy, I really enjoy recording this podcast with you each and every week. Do you? Well, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but this is not the only thing we do at Good Faith Media. It's not. We have so many offerings for you. We have a plethora of podcasts, videos, news and opinion articles, Bible studies, books, and much, much more. Find us at goodfaithmedia.org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us, a prize-winning historian and Emmy Award nominee. Randall Balmer holds the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth, the oldest endowed professorship at Dartmouth College. He earned a Ph.D. from Princeton University in 1985 and taught as a professor of American religious history at Columbia University for 27 years before coming to Dartmouth in 2012. He has been a visiting professor at Princeton, Yale Northwestern, and Emory Universities, and the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. He was also a visiting professor at Yale Divinity School from 2004 to 2008. Dr. Balmer has been published widely in both scholarly journals and in the popular press. He is regularly asked to comment on religion in American life, and he has appeared frequently on network television, NPR, and both the Colbert Report and The Daily Show with Jon Stewart. Dr. Palmer has published more than a dozen books. His latest entitled, Saving Faith, How American Christianity Can Reclaim Its Prophetic Voice, is in bookstores now. Dr. Palmer, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Good to be here, Mitch and Missy. Thank you for having me. Well, Dr. Balmer, again, congratulations on the new book. Uh, We are big fans. Uh, We're always cheerleaders of any Balmer book that comes out. We immediately purchase it. We actually do the pre-orders, you know, to try to raise your stock there uh, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. But uh, uh, congratulations on the book. It is the perfect, perfect size. I can't wait to buy this and give it out as a gift to, to others. Well, thank you. <laughs> As I said, I haven't seen it yet myself, so uh, I understand some copies are on the way, but uh, uh, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I want to begin by asking you kind of a personal question. Reading your book and doing my own research throughout the years regarding the topic that you are writing about in uh, Saving Faith, I am struck by the significance of the prophetic voices throughout history, and you allude to many of them within this book and throughout your entirety uh, of your writing career. Now, here are some of the questions I have of somewhat of a personal note. What kind of prophetic voice do you imagine for this time right now? Is is it an echo of the past or something new emerging at this time and in this moment? What a great question. Uh, Well, I I guess my default answer to that without having thought about it more than (laughs) just a few (laughs) seconds to ask the question is that it it, it has to be a prophetic voice that is informed by the past. And by the past, I mean, um, you know, not merely uh, American religious history, although that would be my uh, one 
one of my points of reference, but also the the New Testament. And so, I, and I try to make the case in the book that the the prophetic voice takes seriously the notion of Jesus as the Word of God. Now, um, I may be already wandering far afield here, but uh, I expect that your background is, is is somewhat similar to mine, from what I know of, uh, for for uh, both of you. And what I kept hearing when I when I grew up was the Word of God. We have to take the Word of God right. seriously. And what they meant was the Bible. Right. And I think that if you if you read John 1 <laughs> rather carefully and seriously, it, it, the Word of God doesn't refer to the Bible, and, and I'm not minimizing the importance right, of sure. the Bible. Don't get me wrong about that. The Word of God is Jesus. John right. 1, 1 is pretty clear about that. And so if we look at Jesus as the prophetic voice, and see how that has been applied by various people throughout history. I think you have a, a, a pretty good, pretty good understanding of what prophetic voice should should sound like. Now, to get to the point of your question, uh, a prophetic voice today is that going to be merely a kind of re- reverberation or an echo of prophetic voices in the past? Um, I, I don't think so. I, I think that. Each era offers its own challenges, and we're living in an era where religion is either on one side of the the political or religious spectrum, either uh, affirming differences, uh, uh, affirming uh, inclusivity, or it is opposed to to those sorts of things. And I think uh, the challenge today, you know, from for you know, my understanding of the of the gospel and the uh, imperatives of the gospel, is that uh, we come down on the side of affirmation, and that I think what is what Jesus was was all about. So uh, I think today's prophetic voice, I think, would would address those sorts of issues in a way that perhaps prophetic voices in the past wouldn't have wouldn't have thought to do, to be honest, uh, because of different historical circumstances. Well, I'm so glad you brought Jesus into the conversation because we think <laughs> we, we think really highly of of that guy. Uh, but you know, one of the things that we have noticed here at Good Faith uh, Media has been when we hear the rhetoric of those who are wrapped or steeped in fundamentalist Christianity or Christian nationalism uh, or you know, the problem with the religious, I know there's a problem with the term religious right, but those uh, those who are advocating for this very rigid theology and practice of theology, it seems as though Jesus disappears in their rhetoric. They don't talk a lot about Jesus, and you actually even allude to that in the book. Yeah, I think that's true. And I'm struck by a quote from Man Lamott, who's one of my favorite authors, who says, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but uh, she says something to the fact that if if your Jesus hates all of the same people you do, <laughs> you could be pretty confident that you have made Jesus into your image. <laughs> right. And I think that's what's happening with a lot of folks. And, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm sure I do this as well. And, and, and that's, uh, that's not a good thing. But I, I think we see a lot of that in, in Christianity today. So, Dr. Balmer, you begin the book by talking about um, the Pew Research, the 2021 Pew Research study. 
um, which we have, I know, written about. We have several articles yeah, about. So. We've talked about this internally. We've talked about it on this podcast that found a steep decline in people's involvement and engagement with the Christian church. I know the pandemic, I think we would all recognize the pandemic has added drastically to the numbers and to that decline. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of the common factors that are prompting people to withdraw from the church to disregard that prophetic voice that, that you two were just discussing? Yeah, I think there are probably a lot of things going on. And I think, uh, I think part of it is simply the difficulties of modern life. Uh, most households now, I'm not sure most, but I, I imagine uh, at least pretty close to a majority have two income sources. That is the... At uh, least, the, <laughs> right? At least, yeah, right. Um, uh, two jobs at least. And so at the end of the week, mom and dad are pretty tired. Um, this is their only chance for family time. And uh, heading off to church, you know, getting the kids uh, packed up and going is a bit of a burden for folks. I think Sunday morning soccer is a huge, huge issue. Uh, athletics that are taking place over on the weekends, I think that's a big issue. I think in terms of the faith itself, there or, or religious expressions of the faith, there is a kind of crass politicization that's going on. Frankly, on both sides of the political spectrum or the religious spectrum over the last several decades, and I think that has alienated a lot of folks, and they just don't see that uh, the faith or their understanding of the faith is reflected in what they're hearing on Sunday morning. So there are a lot of things going on, I think. And I, in the book, I talk specifically about you know the three largest groups, that is to say mainline Protestants, white evangelicals, and the Roman Catholic Church. And I think each of them has their own challenges. Uh, with Roman Catholicism, of course, you have the lingering effects of the pedophilia scandal. I think you also have the effects of the the bishops, uh, the kind of far-right bishops. Not all of bishops are fit in that category. Many of them in positions of leadership have uh, thrown their lot in with Donald Trump as have white evangelicals um, with the far right reaches of the Republican Party. And I think with mainland Protestants, you have uh, issues of inclusion and diversity, also attrition. Um, as you know, I'm an Episcopal priest. I do a good bit of uh, supply work, uh, particularly when I'm in New England. And I have to tell you that the parishes where I'm serving are, are frankly, they're dying. <laughs> and I, it's demographics, but it's also people falling away from the from the faith, and and that's very troubling to me. Well, another topic that uh, you talk about in the book and, and write about so eloquently is a misguided remedy that the church attempts to regain its relevance. That there are some of these misguided remedies that are very attractive to some within the church and even the lar larger culture. Uh, one is this uh, advocating for a return to past values. But when you begin to peel that onion a little bit, you discover real quickly that there is a massive problem with that way of thinking. Can you explain why longing for the past is not always that helpful? I know this is difficult for a historian, but uh, tell us a little bit about why it's important to learn from the past and glean knowledge from the past but this idea of returning to the past is so, so damaging. I think 
one interpretation of the religious right, and as you know, this is something I've, I've thought about and written about quite a bit, mm-hmm. is that there was a kind of pining for some idealized notion of what America was in the 1950s and early 1960s and so forth. And I actually teach a course on the 1960s, so I, <laughs> I, I, deal, I, I delve into that a bit. And there is this idealized vision of the past, the Ozzy and Harriet sort of uh, family structure. Uh, Andy of Mayberry is a very popular uh, nostalgic trip for a lot of people. And I talk in the book about the people who go to Mount Airy, North Carolina, in search of Andy of Mayberry and those sorts of values and that sort of thing. But I think, again, as you suggested, if you scratch the surface a little bit, uh, you see that a lot of folks are not living their true selves, uh, certainly in terms of sexual identity. You have women who are uh, who have submerged their identities into uh, their husbands and their families. And that begins to change, of course, with the publication in 1963 of the feminine mystique, the second wave feminism. But there is still that very strong pull back to these idealized days of the 1950s. And I try to suggest in that in the book that, well, maybe they were not so <laughs> so ideal as, right. as, as we think, particularly in terms of race relations. Of course, this is the beginnings of the modern civil rights movement with the murder of Emmett Till in 1955 and then Rosa Parks in Montgomery, Alabama in December of 1955. Uh, and so the the idealized vision we have, or many people have, of America in the 1950s uh, did not give women much agency, and certainly people of color were not partaking in that sort of idyllic vision that a lot of people are trying to resurrect. Yeah. So another topic that you talk about, I'm sorry, I'm trying to fumble with my book and my notes <laughs> because I have to show you evidence. Um you talk about the Christian nationalism and our founding fathers, and you did such a great job of summarizing each founder and what their beliefs were. And if if you're not aware, one of my favorite things to do as we open our podcast is to give Mitch a quiz. And so I have each of the founders like underlined along with their oh, no. uh, belief system. Oh, no. And I immediately got, oh, I, I got twitchy um, imagining walking into your classroom and having an exam in which there's like all these founding fathers listed on one side and all of their belief systems on the other and you have to match. This is a terrifying memory for me in test taking. So Mitch, Get ready. Okay. All right. I can't wait. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. back to the question at hand. Uh, why is it so important? Uh, why was it so important to the founders that the United States government be established as a secular institution? And in it, will you just kind of briefly touch on the treaty that you quote in the book? The tri- oh, yes. Tripoli, right? right? Treaty of Tripoli, yes. 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 Uh, well, I think... The founders I, were really quite remarkable people, uh, and I think part of what they were looking at was the history of religious factionalism in Europe. And so they saw, here you have these European societies that are resting or founded on this intersection of religion and politics, church and state. 
And they saw all of the bitter disputes that came out of that, and they wanted to avoid that. I think that was one factor. I think the other factor was the fact that along the Atlantic seaboard, there was a remarkable diversity of religious life during the colonial period. Um, one, of the, one of my basic bread and butter courses that I've been teaching now for mm, years, <laughs> uh, four decades at least, uh, the last time I counted, is religion in North America. And what I do at the beginning of that course, almost invariably, is I take a map of the Atlantic seaboard from the colonial period. And I ask students, what was the main religious group in each of these areas or each of these colonies. So um, I won't go through it all today, but of course you've got the, the, both the pilgrims and the Puritans in New England. You go down to Rhode Island, you've got Baptists as well as Quakers, and you've got a huge diversity of religious life that was intentional. Uh, That was Roger Williams' ideas to create a a haven for religious conscience. You go uh, to uh, west to Connecticut, you've got another brand of Puritanism. You come down into the middle colonies, you've got the Dutch Reformed Church, but you also have Huguenots, you've got Roman Catholics, you've got Quakers, you've got Baptists, you've got Lutherans, uh, Pennsylvania, you've got all these German religious groups. And so, uh, and and what is now Delaware was founded by Swedish Lutherans. I mean, you know, you talk about religious diversity. So, uh, and I'm not going through the whole map here, but you get, you get the idea. And the founders were very aware of that. And so they said, listen, we're not going to establish any one religion as the faith of the country. And uh, in, in Virginia, there was a, a, a real showdown, frankly, between Patrick Henry and James Madison, because Patrick Henry wanted to specify Christianity, you know, broadly Christianity as the religion of uh, Virginia, and Madison uh, marshaled his uh, his his forces, and they were able to turn that back. So I think that's part of the genius of American life. And again, um, I often talk about the First Amendment as America's best idea, and I think it is because it has set forth this uh, establishment or disestablishment uh, where no one religious group would be able to uh, dominate American religious life. And that has created a free marketplace and has led to the vitality of religious life in America, which is unmatched anywhere in the world. Now, you asked me to to refer to uh, the Treaty of Tripoli, which is uh, really quite remarkable. And I don't have the text in front of me. I think maybe, Misty, you can I read it for it. me. I have it. Would you like me to <laughs> read Let me first set it up here. Let me first set it up by saying that uh, this was a treaty that was negotiated during the uh, presidency of George Washington, and it came finally to the Senate for ratification in, I believe, 1796, when, uh, is, am I right about that? I don't have the text in front of me, when John Adams was yeah. was president. And so uh, this treaty came before the Senate. The Senate. It was uh, read aloud in front of the Senate and ratified unanimously by the United States Senate. And uh, Missy will read the text for me because I don't have it in front of me. Okay, so I'll read the the text here from the book. It says, As the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion, 
as it has in itself no character of enmity against the law, religion, or tranquility of the Muslims, and as the said states never have entered into any war or act of hostility against any Islamic nation, it is declared by the parties that no pretext arising from religious opinions shall ever produce an interruption of the harmony existing between the two countries. Wow. And I'll ask you to read that first that, that first phrase again. As the government of the United States of America is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. There you go. Again, That's for the folks clear. in the back <laughs> or on the right. I don't know. <laughs> any questions? I mean, this is exactly. I, mean I remember, yeah. I remember this, that Tripoli being a test question somewhere along the way throughout my school career, but had never, you know, read it in this entirety, in this context. So I, I have it marked. I have it um, posted, noted here as well. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's really quite remarkable. And, and that it points to the fact that that was the understanding of the founding generation is that the United States was not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. And so we have these people running around and you know the names as well as I do, uh, people who are saying that the United States is and always has been a Christian nation. Well, they're just uh, they're absolutely wrong about that. Right. And, uh, you know, again, I, I provide evidence in the book, but the Treaty of Tripoli is, is uh, kind of the clincher in many ways. And what I really like about how you outlined in the book, Dr. Balmer, was how complex and complicated each of the founders actually were. Their religious beliefs were numerous, and they disagreed yep. among themselves, and, and, and sometimes they disagreed within their own <laughs> minds, uh, changing sure. their minds over time. Uh, it, so it, it's just a good it, reminder that, you know, while we, you know, kind of lionize these, this incredible generation who helped frame this country, they were also human beings and were trying to figure out their own theologies, work out their own theologies. I'll use a good Pauline term there, work out their own sure. theology and salvation in that moment. So it's just a great reminder of that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I like to say that um, I, I can't think of a single founder, with the possible exception of John Witherspoon, who would be uh, qualified for membership in any evangelical church. <laughs> exactly. That yeah. That's exactly right. They so. needed one more stanza of that invitation. <laughs> that's right. They, they would have come yeah, down. Right. They would have come that's down. Right. That's Just right. Just one more. Every head bowed, every eye closed, you guys. Well, <laughs> Uh, Dr. Bobway, before I talk to you about some possible solutions to all of this, I do want to ask you about the term Christian nationalism because it is paramount in our culture today. You write about it in the book. We've had other uh, scholars, theologians, pastors on the show and have written for Good Faith Media about this rising tide of Christian nationalism. It's become so pre uh, prevalent that even those who we have kind of put that title on are embracing it now. Yeah. But it seems to not go as far as I want it to go because— Christian nationalism, the term itself, is somewhat enticing for those who are uneducated about all of this, these things that we've talked about today. It seems to be this mixture of a very fundamentalist theology or even a you know, perverted theology that abandons the traditions and tenets of the faith and replaced by this very autocratic political agenda. 
And one of the terms Mm -hmm. that has been surfacing lately in some of the conversations we have been having with others is uh, Christo-fascism, that Mm -hmm. this is really more of a fascist movement that attempts to utilize elements, and I use that term loosely, elements of the Christian faith to really propagate a political takeover of our institutions. Yeah, I think you're right. And and I think to, to try to put it into context, I, I, I can't help but believe that people who are pushing this notion are really afflicted with a sense of loss. That is to say, and this circles back to the question about nostalgia earlier in many ways, that is to say, they are arguing, well, America once was a great place. And when it was great, it had Christian values, you know, however they want to right, define sure. them. And I expect they would not define them the same way that you, I, you, you would or I would. Uh, and, and so what they're trying to do is, is uh, and you, you mentioned the term Christo-fascism, they're trying to impose that, that to, to reimpose that sort of ethos. And, you know, I, I think anyone with any historical sense will recognize that's not going to work. Right. <laughs> it's not going to happen that way. Uh, you, you can't force people to share your values. I, I think, you know, to to diverge into a sensitive topic. I think the Dobbs decision is a very good example of that sort of thing. Exactly. Where, and you know, we can get into the nuts and bolts of the abortion debate if you want to, I'm not really uh, proposing to go there, but uh, you know, let's impose our values, our worldview on everybody. So everybody uh, behaves as we do, or even thinks as we do. It's just not going to work. I'm sorry, especially right. in a pluralistic, gorgeously multicultural society in which we live. It's just not going to work. So I mean, getting back uh, again, I don't want to dive into the abortion thing, but my argument on the abortion issue has been for a long time, it should be treated as a moral issue rather than a legal issue. That is to say, if you really want to eliminate abortion, you have to change the moral consensus around that that issue. You know, again, my shorthand very often is, I have no interest in making abortion illegal. I would like to make it unthinkable. That is to say, let's change our understanding of this entire issue. And that, I think, is where, that that's an arena where, where moral arguments, I think, can be exercised and should be exercised rather than trying to impose a particular perspective on uh, the entire nation. And so the Christian nationalism thing, I think, fits into that. that yeah. It's it's uh, an assertion, it's a historically flawed assertion, but it's an assertion that um, America is and always was a, a, a Christian nation, and that, you know, that is demonstrably false. Sure. Well, in light of your analysis of history and the current state of the church, uh, you know, referring back to that 21 uh, Pew research that talked about the rise of the nuns as well as the decline of the institutional church, do you have any recommendations, Dr. Balmer, to help people of good faith regain that prophetic voice in yeah. society? How, how can we reclaim that space? 
Yeah, I, I, I try to address that in the book. I, I talk about uh, looking uh, at historical examples. And again, history t- teaches us uh, what works and what doesn't. Teacher, history teaches us um, the examples of, of, of good folks, but also the examples of people who are not so good. I think that's one of the ways to to begin reclaiming that uh, prophetic voice, particularly looking at people who are are um, worthy of emulation. I think that's 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 one one approach. Uh, I think the other is, as I suggested earlier, to take seriously that Jesus is the Word of God. If we're serious about a prophetic voice, I think we need to not only. Um, echo the prophets themselves, that is the Hebrew prophets, but also as Christians, uh, our primary prophet, uh, who is Jesus, the Word of God. And we begin modeling our lives on Jesus and taking seriously what he said. Now, again, trying to apply that into a contemporary political perspective, you know, Jesus said something about aliens and foreigners and strangers. Jesus said something about prisoners. Jesus said something about widows and orphans and those he called the least of these. And if we are to take seriously our status as people of faith, people who are call themselves the followers of Jesus, I think we have to look at the Word of God, and not only the Scriptures, but the Word of God, who is Jesus, and try to emulate His example. Well, Missy, leave it up to an Episcopal priest to bring it back to Jesus. (laughs) That guy. He's causing all the problems for us these days. (laughs) Well, Dr. Vollmer, thank you so much for taking time for us yet again after writing yet another book, Saving Faith. I will say this was a really great companion to um, your earlier book, Bad Faith, which I, I believe I listened to that one before we interviewed you the first time right. um, about the sports book. Um, so I now that we have Bad Faith and Saving Faith, I want to know what's the next one in the series? <laughs> what's the next faith? <laughs> what's the next faith? And maybe the last one, whenever you get to the end, should be Good Faith. Oh, wow. Look I at mean, there. I've heard that Ooh, I like that. That's good. Right. So, or Blind Faith. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we can get a few more creative ones in there yeah. first, but these are great great little books. I very much appreciate them. They're, they're so informative and yet easily digestible um, without having to, yeah, use... Um, 1500 pages to do it and all seriousness i mean it's such a great size it's about 100 pages it's a great uh, be a great gift for christmas uh, coming up uh, this year yes bring this to your family gathering mitch that's a great piece of advice bring it to the thanksgiving (laughs) dinner table that would be great talking well you know and i think you know i I mean you're very kind to to say those nice words about it but uh, i i think it, it probably could be used in a kind of an adult form or a, 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 a Sunday school context as well. So That's I don't, I, for that. I'm, you know, so it's not my job to, to pedal the book, but uh, it seems to me that it, it would lend itself to that sort no, of I'd conversation. Agree wholeheartedly. No, I absolutely agree. Well, again, thank you for joining us today. And for our last, last question, as you know, 
our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work in our conversation today, what is your more to tell? You know, you've asked me this now several times in our interviews, and uh, one of these days I'm going to get it right uh, and think about it beforehand. But I, I guess what occurs to me today in, in the context of our conversation is history matters. And obviously I'm a historian, so you don't expect me to say that sort of thing. But I think we can learn a lot from history, um, things that we should emulate, things that we should avoid. And I think, uh, and again, in the context of this conversation, the um, the, the dangers of trying to uh, mold history to your ideological agenda. And I think that's what's happening a lot these days uh, with the whole Christian nationalist movement and the the uh, the nonsense, frankly, that the United States is and always has been a Christian nation. I think uh, that's a dangerous notion. And I say that, as you know, as a person of faith, someone committed to the you know, to to the Christian faith, and I think that notion is uh, quite damaging. So, history matters. Next time, we'll I'll, I'll try to come up with an even better answer. Oh, I like that. that. I like that. That's history great. matters. You're absolutely right. We should like put that on a T-shirt or something. I agree, 100. <laughs> <laughs> percent Dr. Randall Balmer, his new book is Saving Faith: How American Christianity Can Reclaim Its Prophetic Voice. Thank you, my friend. It's always great to talk to you. You're wonderful. I appreciate both of you. Thanks for your good work. It is always a joy to have Dr. Balmer on the show. It really is. So I teased a little quiz. <laughs> I know. Why did you do that? I know. We've never done one in the outro <laughs> before. And we're not really going to do a quiz. But I do think we're going to talk about, and, and, and then we'll talk about why this is important. Mm -hmm. I do want to talk about some of the founding fathers and their beliefs. So okay. in doing so, we're, we're going to have a little pop quiz here. <laughs> nothing too difficult. More of a discussion quiz. How's that? This is a class participation where if you raise your hand, then you get points. Okay. Okay. okay yeah. so let's go with that. So tell us what was Washington? What was Washington? George Washington. What was what his? Mean, what was he? What <laughs> he was, was his? First well, president. Okay. General so, <laughs> all right. Let me start over. <laughs> What were Washington's religious beliefs or his denomination or his, and I say denomination, I, I realize that's problematic, but I, but I say that because that's what no, our well, current society wants to impose on them. Sure. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's no doubt about it. He was a deist. Okay. Uh, he talks. Ding, ding, ding. You got that right. Okay. You don't mean to elaborate at all. Go ahead. Well, I can tell you, he was baptized into the Church of England, but mm -hmm. he never, he was never confirmed. He rarely or never took Holy Communion. Mm-hmm. So um, tell us briefly, what is a deist? A deist believes, and you can actually pick this up in his writings, uh, it's a, a belief that there is one God and that this overarching God is providential and oversees the um, kind of the... the the life of, of humanity and it's kind of the big chess player of everything. And so always guiding human history as it evolves, but there is a divine creator, a divine presence uh, moving. I don't know that I would say chess in this regard, but um, maybe as I was gonna say, Dr. Balmer, you know, has the offers this statement. We can kind of talk about this. Mm -hmm. A deist is someone who believes in a divine creator, but a creator who remains indifferent to his creation. 
Yes. So I think that kind of is providential. Or providential, this, yeah, I think, is a yeah, good word. Yeah. I I sort of take issue with that in that I don't know that there's anything ever that that I would create or that a person creates that they can be completely indifferent to. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm I'm kind of wrestling with that a little bit right now as far as deism would be concerned. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, well, could could a creator ever truly be completely indifferent? I don't know that yeah, indifferent is the word, but maybe like you said, more providential. But I also think it's very contextual as well. Is what I can kind of wrap my head around. I think it's very contextual from the era that Washington lived within because, mm-hmm. I mean, he's, he's in, he lives in Virginia. Uh, he is a plantation owner. He's very aloof. He's a general. So classism is a huge thing back in these days. So if you're at the top then you had this aloofness to, you know, to you and about you, and you don't really relate to anybody below you. Okay. And so if there is a deity that is above you, you're going to assume that that deity is going to relate to you, you being underneath them as you relate to those who are underneath you. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. John Adams. John Adams. He was an Anglican? He was reared Congregationalist. Congregationalist. So that makes sense. He's in be- Boston. Yeah. But became Unitarian. Mm-hmm. Here's an interesting fact. He did not believe in the Trinity or Christian doctrine. Really? And a lot of these founding fathers, uh, you know, what I'm saying here is they may mm-hmm. have started one way, as we all do. You're raised one way, and then you kind of ebb and flow in your belief. But I believe that kind of the final word was that he, he did not believe in the Trinity or the Christian doctrine. Okay. So, so he started out Congregationalist and ended... Ended Unitarian. And as we'll learn, I mean, in our conversation and, and if, if you, when you read the book, is that I, it's really difficult for us to pinpoint sometimes any one thing. Right. So we're trying to um, connect what we understand today mm-hmm. back to history. Yeah, sure. So we're we're giving based on you know evidence or based on the books that we read, mm-hmm. our best understanding right. of, of where they were um, spiritually and theologically. So, uh, John Witherspoon. I have no idea. Okay, he was a signer of the Declaration of mm-hmm. Independence. Um, not somebody. I mean, I remember the name, but not much about him. He um, is associated with Presbyterian and um, Calvinism. Makes sense. Um, he really is the only founding father who would who fits comfortably within the Christian tradition as defined by the Nicene Creed. Okay. So he's really the only one that, that you can kind of point to and say he, he fits in the box. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Benjamin Franklin. Uh, Franklin was a Unitarian? The, it, this says he was reared Calvinist. Okay. And then he became, and, and so I'm a little unclear on this, became Mason, which I'm seeing this in ah. some books that we're reading, and I don't really understand how the Freemasons like fit into the mm-hmm. religious structure, so I don't really have a good answer for this, so I don't know if you're right or wrong. Okay. But that's... that's well, I mean, I, he, I don't think he had a strong faith uh, practice. I mean, he saw the role of religion as important. That's, oh my goodness, society. you said the same thing Dr. Palmer said. Wow. 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 <laughs> I'm just... Wow. Um, yes, it, uh, Dr. Ballmer says he understood the utility of religions, which should be, uh, you know, an issue in morality. So he right. understand the, sure. understood the use and need for them. So uh, James Madison. Uh, I'd say Madison, maybe a Congregationalist, ends up uh, being a deist, maybe? He was reared Anglican, but never confirmed. 
His religious views are somewhat enigmatic, but he was a fierce opponent of religious establishments. Yeah. I think that's important to note. And I, I pulled this quote well, from the he's, book. He's one that wrote the First Amendment to the Constitution. I, I, I pulled this quote. It says, ecclesiastical establishments tend to great ignorance and corruption. Love it. <laughs> and I, yeah, I think that's all that needs to say. Okay, so our last founding father we're really going to talk about, um, because I knew you'd have a lot to say about this one. Can you TJ? guess who it is? Yes. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson. Uh what okay, I know you're gonna like go off for twenty minutes here. Oh, no, I'm we don't not. have twenty minutes. But um so I'm gonna just tell you the answer I have here mm-hmm. and then you can expound. Mm-hmm. I have quote, he disliked religious factionalism. Yes. Okay, so do you want to comment? I have some more comments, but do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, uh, Jefferson is a moralist. Uh, he, you know, as Dr. Balmer points out in the interview, uh, his most famous work is the Jeffersonian Bible, where he takes uh, the New Testament and uh, cuts out all of the miracle uh, miracles that Jesus performed uh, and really you know, boils down to a moral and ethical way of living. Um, you know, it's hard to pinpoint his particular religion. A lot of people would say maybe he was a deist. Uh, you know, I think he could also be possibly an agnostic. Uh, and so uh, he was a moralist. Now, what's interesting about that, obviously, with a lot of the founding fathers is they believed in morals and ethics, but you know, a lot of them, like Madison and Washington, are slaveholders as well. And we've been to Monticello. We've seen, you know, the, the slave quarter right, and stuff like that. Right. And so uh, there is this this tension of hypocrisy within all of their their faiths, uh, claiming to be ethical, moral individuals. Uh, but at any rate, um, you know, I would, I would probably say deist or agnostic. So my my last little note here says Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson that none of them affirmed the divinity of Jesus. No, which. You know, it goes in line. I, I've heard about the Jeffersonian Bible from you. I mean, I, that was not something I knew before about before um, meeting you. But one thing that Dr. Balmer wrote about that I didn't uh, know, um, it says, I'm just going to read this from the book. His most famous religious venture was to excise any mention of miracles of Jesus's divinity from the Gospels. He published what remained as... Uh, the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth extracted textually from the Gospels. Isn't that an essay you want to read or a <laughs> yeah, book? Yeah. Um, but it's better known simply as the Jeffersonian Bible. Right. Um, he characterized his de- depiction of Jesus as, quote, a paradigm of his doctrines made by cutting the text out of the book and arranging them on the pages of a blank book in a certain order of time or subject. But here's what I want to point out. He then says, quote, a more beautiful or precious morsel of ethics I have never seen. And that hit me reading those words in the book because I feel like that's kind of what you and I have been talking about, I mean, for quite a while now. Yeah. As, um, you know, the term Christian and Christian nationalism and all that's going on within faith and culture and government is if we take away the noise and and look at the life, the ethics, the moral code of Jesus Himself. How do you not want to follow that guy? Right. And I I just I just thought that was such an interesting statement that he made, and one that that just falls such in line with kind of what we've we've spent a lot of time talking about as of late. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I mean, and Jesus is not the only prophet out there that you know talked a little bit about the uh, Muslims for progressive faith. That's one thing that they kept talking about is that. 
we call ourselves progressive, but really this progressiveness is rooted in the original teachings of Muhammad. Right. And I would say the same thing about our progressive faith as Christians, or I consider myself a progressive Christian. I don't know what you consider yourself. <laughs> That's a whole different episode. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but trying to get back to the central ideas that we do find in Scripture, uh, which in some strange way is a very conservative ideology, trying to understand exactly what uh, Jesus is talking about and the principles and ethics that he uh, promoted and advocated for back in his time and you know, are relatable to today. Right. I just feel like so many things, the Bible, the Constitution, all these documents, all these, I guess, standards we've shaped our worldview and our life around have been so perverted in many ways. And like you talk about, I think in the interview, um, you know, one thing with Christian nationalism, or I guess, would you, I don't know what you would call them. Muslim I would say nationalism, that, just nationalism, nationalism general, that is trying to infiltrate. That has, has removed yeah. Jesus, yeah. you know, from the equation. And then I guess in the, on the Muslim side has re- removed, you know, their prophet Muhammad right. from, from the discussion. And it's, it's, I feel bad that it went so long in my life before realizing those kinds of things of, okay, wait, let's go back and just look at this person that we claim to follow, what did they say? Does that mesh with my values? Does that mesh with my belief system? Mm-hmm. And not what somebody else is telling me they said or did or intended. And I think that's the same thing with the founding fathers. Mm-hmm. You know, when we look at original intent or, you know, what does the original document say or whatever, it's, it's, you have to be able to think a little more critically, I think, than a lot of people want right. to think. A lot of people ask me about my journey to where I am today as a progressive. And I always point out the fact that when I stopped listening to preacher rhetoric and started actually studying the scriptures and, and reading and reflecting upon the words and life of Jesus, that's how I became who I am today. The same can be said with my political ideology in looking at what the Founding Fathers wrote, believed, and advocated for during their time. It's all there in black and white. All you have to do is go read it. Unfortunately, what a lot of people do in the pew and what they do in their public uh, political life is they take everybody, all the pundits' word on what, uh, what the founder said or what Jesus said or Paul said, and they don't do any original research for themselves. Or who they were. Like right. we've been sold this bill of goods that we are a Christian nation yeah. or that our founding fathers were, and they just... They just weren't. Right. You don't really have to dig very far to find that to not be true. Yeah. Um, and it's it's kind of a embarrassing, I yeah. mean, personally, and, and to know that, you know, I just kind of accepted, all right, whatever, yeah. you know, this was, I mean, uh, I never would have called it a Christian nation growing up or right. my early adulthood, but it was just, we were allowed to assume. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I really like this book that Dr. Bomber has published. Uh, it's a it's a small book. It's about mm-hmm. eighty pages long, uh, and and but it's filled with incredible facts. It's very readable. Um, it's something that you can you know knock out in an afternoon uh, or a morning with with a right. cup of coffee. Uh, but it's just filled with facts. Big 
my opinion, it would be a great gift to, to give to someone. Yeah, I mean, the so, holidays are coming so up. We're going to do this. Like, who, which which late night host does the take or make the kid think you ate all their Halloween candy yeah. and then report, you know, video it. Right, right. So yeah, let's just do that. If you decide to give this book as a gift to a family member this Christmas, go ahead and just circle back. Let us know what happens. Send us some audio, video, whatever you want to do. Absolutely. But yeah, I feel like this. It, this was such a great like you said, digestible, quick, but gave so much information. I yeah. felt like it paired well with um, the first book of his that I read, which was Bad Faith. Mm-hmm. I love that too, because it was the same size and structure, mm-hmm. or maybe not structure, but it was the same size, but just packed in a lot of helpful information for those like starting this journey right. of looking into Christian nationalism, our history. So I would highly recommend uh, both of those books. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got a, still got a lot of work to do, and I don't mind telling you, Missy, I'm a little bit tired. Just getting off the plane. Hang on. You got to go take that trash out, man. (laughs) Sorry, folks. I got to go take the trash out, take the recyclables out, fix the garage door. What else? Um, Well, I'm not sure. (laughs) I'll figure it out here in a minute. (laughs) All right. Have a great weekend. We'll be back next week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.